Hi everyone, this is The 20s Project with Sebastian and Jay. Today's interview is with Ann Yang, a venture-backed startup founder, Gates Millennium Scholar and Forbes 30 Under 30 alum. Ann was the co-founder of Misfit Foods, a plant-based food company she started with her co-founder, Phil Wong, during college at Georgetown. In this interview, we talk about Ann's experience starting Misfit Foods in college and what she's learned about mental health as it relates to entrepreneurship. Anne has spoken about entrepreneurship, diversity and inclusion, and mental health for the Forbes 30 Under 30 Conference and United Women in Business. Her work has been featured in media outlets such as Cosmopolitan, Vogue, and Fast Company. Anne is a purpose-driven force of nature, and we're excited to share our conversation with you. Anne, thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to have you here at the 20s Project. So whenever we start this, we always like to go into our guest childhood. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, your childhood, and and what did you want to do when you were uh, growing up? Thanks so much, Sebastian. Thank you for having me. A little bit about my childhood. I grew up in a small town called Lamont, Colorado, which is about 30 minutes outside of Boulder. And my parents immigrated from China. And I don't think I knew this at the time, but one of my reflections about that was I feel I got entrepreneurial lessons very early um, because my parents were essentially embarking on this huge entrepreneurial project, which is figuring out how to build a new life in the United States and had to be really scrappy with financial resources growing. And so I always really admire that about them. And when I was growing up, I think I didn't really know what I wanted to be. And I think I always had a lot of existential dread about it. I think when I was really young, I wanted to be a magician before I found out that Santa Claus like wasn't real. In high school, I thought about being a therapist or like an editor-in-chief of a magazine, but it wasn't really until I got into college that I had thought about startups as an idea or thought about being more entrepreneurial. And, and then you obviously, you decided to attend Georgetown and there you were a Gates Millennium Scholar. Why don't you tell us a bit about the scholarship for those who are not aware? Yeah, the scholarship, I would say, is the most important thing that has happened to me in my life in the way that it really changed both my trajectory and the opportunities that were presented to me. I think a big defining part of my life was growing up in a low-income household. And when I got to high school, my parents and I didn't really know how I was going to pay for college. And thanks to the support of my mom and my dad and also mentors in my community, I was able to get the Gates Millennium Scholarship, which is a initiative started by Bill and Melinda Gates to send low-income kids from diverse backgrounds to school on a full-ride scholarship. And so they did it over 20 years and they sent 20,000 kids to college. So it was a thousand scholars per year. And the way that the scholarship is designed is it's a four-year fully covered scholarship, including your full cost of living. And you can go to any American accredited university. And I think one of the most powerful things about it is that because it's based off of the full cost of living estimate of your institution rather than just uh, the tuition. It means that kids from financially disadvantaged backgrounds can really have a true college experience instead of working the entire time to cover board or books. And they can actually do things, get internships and like participate in clubs and more of the social aspects of school. And so that is one of the things that I'm really grateful for is that it was just a really well-designed scholarship that thinks about your life holistically rather than thinking about getting your tuition covered. And in addition, I think 
even though Georgetown was a big shock for me in many different ways, I don't, I didn't even really fully understand like what private school was before I went to Georgetown. The Jesuit nature of Georgetown, I think Georgetown having a focus on helping like first gen kids or kids from historically marginalized backgrounds like succeed really made it an incredible place for me. And in addition, it's just a huge privilege not to have college debt. And it's something that I reflect a lot on how that's impacted my life and how grateful I am for that. If I had any meaningful college debt, I don't think I would have started a company in college or been more entrepreneurial and taken more risks with my career. I think I definitely would have taken a safer path. And it really was this realization that most people, including my parents, never really get to ask the question, what can my career mean to me more than the financial output or transaction, right? Most people, their job is a way that they get by on their life, right? To fulfill basic needs. And to be able to ask this second principle question, which is what do I want to do with my life and how can my work be meaningful beyond a paycheck is a huge privilege. And because I'm able to ask that question and not everyone is able to, I didn't want to squander that opportunity and do something that was perfectly safe. I wanted to think about having a purpose-driven career and fully take advantage of the gift that was given to me, which is not having college debt. That That's awesome. And, and obviously a very competitive scholarship. So props to you for getting that. For anyone in high school, how can they best prepare themselves to, you know, potentially be able to get scholarship like this? Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing is mentorship. And I am like so grateful I got that scholarship. I'm mostly grateful to the community around me. My friend's parents did a lot to help me edit college essays. My mom did a ton of research. Some of my family friends helped me loan me money to take the SAT. It was very much a community endeavor. I think my biggest piece of advice is you just don't know what's out there as a high schooler. And I think the scope of what is possible is still pretty limited at that point. So as many people that you can talk to that are further ahead in their lives or have more experience, the better. And I wouldn't even have known about that scholarship if it wasn't for a family friend. And so I think just putting yourself out there and being really curious is the most important thing. And then the second thing is not being afraid to ask for help. I was relentless around getting those essays edited and figuring out how to take the SAT subject test in the smartest way. And I think just advocating for yourself is really important. And just knowing that like you deserve it, you know, like you deserve the help. So when you were at Georgetown, I'm really interested in the fact that you were a culture and politics major and maybe not like a comp sci major or an econ major or some type of business major that you typically see with someone from an entrepreneurship background or even someone that's coming into school with some debt and needs to enter a high earning career right out of college to pay off that debt. So can you just talk about what your view was coming into college and what your decision around your major was? Yeah, I transferred into Georgetown. So my freshman year, I actually went to a small liberal arts school called Caro College. And I was like, studying philosophy like at Caro College. And I think the ultimately Caro College wasn't the right place for me in terms of it being not a very diverse student body and not nearly being designed to support non-traditional college students as Georgetown was. But my main takeaway from like that experience was the most important part of your undergrad is learning how to think as liberal artsy and like, stereotypical as that is. And I had enough exposure to people who were further ahead in their career, people that I really admired who had been a philosophy, like more liberal arts majors, and they were doing completely fine in their careers. And in many ways, they were grateful that they had had that uh, time to just like be curious and think more deeply and critically about the world. And most of the hard skills that they had learned, they had learned on the job. And so the calculus was like, okay, I know that Georgetown is already a really good school. I can either go into the business school and learn how to use Excel, or I can just not waste my time <laughs> doing that and know that I'll be able to do that on the job and think more critically about these things that might be able to open my brain. 
I also at the time was like really influenced by Isaac, the autobi- uh, the biography of Steve Jobs. Who wrote that? It's like Isaac Walterson. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's a really big one. Walter, I think it's Walter Isaacson. Walter Isaacson. I, the, yes, yeah. I forgot the name, but I read that book and the preface was that he went to read and was a dropout and he was taking mm. all types of classes, including calligraphy. And the calligraphy class influenced the typography strategy for Apple. And if you had not taken that calligraphy class, typography on the internet would not really be a thing. And so I was very interested in this idea of the creative influences of liberal arts and like softer skills on hard skills. And I just wanted that to be the path. And I felt after talking to some mentors, I just like felt pretty confident that if I pursued what was intellectually stimulating to me in a different way and more on the creative end, which culture and politics was, that because Georgetown was a good school, it was ultimately going to be okay. And that's definitely been the case. I never regretted not being a business major or an econ major. <laughs> yeah. So out of all the different liberal arts paths you could have pursued, why did you pick culture and politics? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't think I could have articulated it at that time, but I honestly was just trying to make sense of my own experience. My Parents have faced a lot of structural barriers as immigrants. They had huge stories about the racism and classism that they've experienced in their lives. And I did not like the words to describe that. I didn't know how to talk about it. And I think at Georgetown, the culture and politics classes, like before I decided to major in it, gave me words to describe those structures and inequality in a way that I like otherwise couldn't have. And then I also just think that I still, I think the biggest thing is like I want to work on a career that is very impactful and purpose-driven. And the best way to do that, I felt, was understanding the problems and issues that historically marginalized groups have and really understanding like the problem space and like, developing an empathy for those people. And I think I had this fear as I started to realize that my economic opportunity was going to be really different than my parents, that I was just going to graduate from college and like sort of like get golden handcuffed, I guess, like buy like a secure job and like money and all those things and then like kind of like forget about where I came from and advocating for those communities I didn't really want to lose that um and so I think culture and politics was honestly it was a way for me to be like okay I want to study these structures of inequality and like I don't want to get caught up in this like culture of like wealth and uh like flashiness that like I think like some aspects of Georgetown had and I didn't want to like sort of lose like where I came from in that if that makes sense Looking back, it sounds you had a little bit of a, almost a rebellious attitude yeah. uh, in you, which maybe that's looking back at it retrospectively, but pretty early in your Georgetown career, you started this company called Misfit with one of your best friends, Phil Wong. So can you just talk about how that idea came about and how it started? Yeah. Phil was also in the School of Foreign Service. He was a science, technology, and an international affairs major. And we both took classes at Georgetown in the international relations space that demonstrated why food and water were so deeply connected to climate change. And one of the insights from these classes was that food waste was one of the biggest contributors to climate change in this apparatus of agriculture. And I think for Phil, particularly when he studied abroad in Senegal, the food waste was so much more evident in Senegal than it is in the United States because our waste management system and infrastructure is a lot different. And he also had experiences in the cafeteria at Georgetown where he would just see trays and trays of food that the kids had not eaten go straight into the trash can. And for me, it was realizing that climate change was the thing I wanted to work on. And it felt a space that could be very powerful lever. And that was agriculture and food. And so that was the initial like sketch of understanding the problem space that we wanted to pursue. 
And as we started doing more and more user research on how food waste operates agriculturally, particularly for fruits and vegetables with small to medium-sized farmers, it like we came to realize it was a big issue that farmers were facing in terms of like selling perfectly good products into grocery stores. And it started out as like, a very humble experiment. We bought four crates of peaches from one farmer named Tim at the Georgetown Farmers Market. We still like was trying to be, we could lift like a hundred pounds of peaches to his college house in Burleaf. And <laughs> we walked 10 feet and realized that was not the case. A facilities worker named Mike, who was awesome, happened to drive by in a golf cart at that exact moment and offered to drive us in his golf cart with these hundred pounds of peaches into Burleaf. Mike, if you're listening, you're the best. And that was, we still talk about you to this day. And I borrowed a Vitamix from a woman that I babysat for at the time. And we were just like blending recipes. Like that really was the first version of what happened and I think like the biggest thing was just like we just kept doing the most next obvious thing it was oh we should look into filing LLC we should figure out how to sell this into the corp which is a series of coffee shops and small stores on campus at Georgetown and we did enough to just do the next obvious thing that we built this minimum viable product that by the end of college we had gone into business school class and we won the class structure, which meant that the business school professor ended up investing in the business. So that started our ability to actually do it full time. But I wish I would say that we did it with a whole ton of intentionality. I think there was a lot of intention in the sense that we saw a huge potential in the idea, but it really was just working on it incrementally while we were students that resulted in us being able to pursue it full time. I think there wasn't a decision that Phil and I were like, oh, we want to do this full time. I think we had the sense that we, we had a sense that it could be that, but it was very incremental. And I think that's like an important lesson for anyone who starts a company. I love the name, by the way. How, how did you come up with a name, one? And two, is there a secret hidden message out there uh, for all the misfits? Yeah, so it actually goes back to the Steve Jobs autobiography. I'm not a big Apple person. I know it probably sounds <laughs> we are, but Phil was reading that book too. And I think he saw the line about the misfits in that book around the Think Different campaign that Apple did in the early days. And we had been racking our brains for a name and it just felt like the right one. And the reason why it felt the right one was it alludes to this idea where it's this counterintuitively very universal feeling, right? Everyone has felt a little bit out of place in their lives. Everyone has felt like a little bit, like not like they fully belong. And we just wanted to capitalize on that feeling and relate it to the food system where all these perfectly good fruits and vegetables, just because they're a little bit imperfect or scarred on the outside, doesn't mean that like they don't deserve to have a place. And so it felt like a really good opportunity to connect this emotional feeling that we wanted the brand to embark, which is ultimate inclusiveness with this very literal interpretation of it in the food system. And you mentioned earlier uh, the whole idea of starting a company in college. And we hear a lot about balancing, especially in our generation when we're trying to juggle a ton of different balls. And what I've seen is sometimes when you're doing too much, either something has to give in or maybe everything ends up breaking. So can you tell us a little bit about this whole act of balancing school and also starting a company and how that translated maybe into full-time. Yeah, the truth is I I don't think Phil nor I did a very good job of balancing things. It was just honestly utter and pure chaos for two years and we sacrificed a lot. And I think we sacrificed a lot of our social lives. I think we sacrificed a lot of headspace and like, I think looking back, I don't think I realized how much I was sacrificing until after the fact, if that makes sense. But 
we were really just trying to keep our heads above water, particularly toward the end, our last year when things were really picking up at Misfit. And I think that one of the reasons why it was so chaotic is one, we were very young and we'd never been employed before. And our baseline for what life was supposed to look was college, where you're studying at all hours of the day. You're trying to do everything. You're doing every single club. You're trying to see all of your friends. And so there really is not this division between work and life. College is your life and you're studying really hard. And I think if Phil and I had a more traditional job after college or a couple years of working experience where those boundaries were more clearly defined, like they are my life now, I think that Phil and I would have done a better job of managing burnout, but I think that was one of the things was that because we were used to this chaotic world where you're writing an essay until two in the morning and then going to class the next day for four hours, it made entrepreneurship feel less intense, but also made it so that both of us were pretty bad at managing life with school. And we just, we did the best that we could. And then all of a sudden we were graduating. That's pretty much what happened. Um, It was pretty messy and chaotic in the interim. You had written an article actually, and I think the first year of starting the company or your senior year of college, so pretty early in the company's life. It's called How to Crush It in Your Startup's First Year. There were a lot of different pieces of advice in that article, and we don't have to go through all of them. But now that you're you know, so many years removed from that time period, how has your viewpoint changed or how do you look back on an experience that might differ from what you were uh, feeling in the moment? Yeah, totally. I think most of the advice I still agree with, I think The thing that I would add in this part of my life is that it's very much a marathon, not a sprint. And not everything is an emergency. (laughs) And that makes sense. It's I think that the thing that I now that I'm in working for a different startup and I'm an employee and not a co-founder anymore is that I think it's very easy in startup life to feel everything is on fire, everything is the most important, most urgent thing. And I think that that can create a really reactive culture and you can prioritize duct tape solutions over being more thoughtful around solving root cause problems. And I think this is something that happens pretty frequently in startups, including my own that I started with Phil. And then also I just see it everywhere. I think the advice I would add on is that it's really important to be scrappy and to think about what the MVP of every initiative or every thing that you're doing is. And then also sometimes it's important to be okay, like, are we being really reactive and just like treating the symptom rather than the cause? And there is a time and place to step back and be like, okay, this might not move the metric in the short term. And we might actually not see any movement on the metric in the short term, but that's revenue growth or whatever it is. But it's important that we have time and space to do the discovery work around setting up the foundational thing that we can build upon rather than just putting duct tape everywhere. There was one piece of advice I actually did want to dig into, which was really revolving bound At some point, you'll have no idea what you're doing, so ask for help and stay confident. So a word that came to mind when I was reading that piece of advice was imposter syndrome. Obviously, you're starting this company, you're in college, you basically have no idea what you're doing, and everything seems like a fire drill because there's so many unknowns that come with each problem because you've never faced them before. So can you just talk a little bit about imposter syndrome, what role that played in uh, your life when you were starting Misfit, and how you view that today? Yeah, totally. I... I still deal with imposter syndrome. I just turned 28 and I can tell you that when I was 22 and sorry, I missed it. I thought I would be way more together and know what I was doing at 28 than I currently do. (laughs) So I don't know if that feeling like ever goes away around feeling like you don't know what you're doing. And I think the secret is that like no one, you always feel that way. And projecting confidence is the key to moving forward in life. And it's, yeah, I don't know. It's just like this funny... 
I think particularly if you're coming from any historically marginalized group, whether that is if you're a female software engineer, if you're a woman in investment banking or a person of color in tech, any of these things, it's like, it's really easy to be like, oh, I need to fill this gap. I need to work on these XYZ skill sets. And yes, that's true. And like, you can project confidence at the same time because the people who project confidence are the people who get like promoted and move forward. And um, yeah, like I think that's like just been like a definitely a very interesting insight in my 20s, just watching the way that tech works and being tech for the first time and seeing the dynamics at play and where they're, I think particularly in a post-COVID world where there's been so much conversation, what diversity, equity, inclusion looks like in our space, really reflecting on how imposter syndrome contributes to people feeling like they don't they need a certain amount of confidence to move forward before they actually do something. And I think one of my big passions is like opening up access to startups for people from like historically marginalized backgrounds. And I think, I think a lot about why only less than 3% of venture capital goes to female founders and why that percentage is even lower for people from low income backgrounds or from other historically marginalized backgrounds. And a lot of it I think has to do with this imposter syndrome complex and also just the trade-offs that you have to make when you don't have baseline financial security. And so I think there's a lot of structural things that we need to fix to create a better playing field for everyone. But the thing that people do have control over is just realizing that just because you don't know doesn't mean that you don't deserve to figure it out. And there are a lot of people who do know and you can ask for help and that exists at every stage of your career. And I'm still, I still don't know what I'm doing. I'm right now at work, I'm being asked to work on a project that I have no context for, no prior experience for. And it's like the mentality is still the same. It's like you figure it out and then you become an expert and just feeling, moving through that mentally and getting over yourself in your own head is a big, it's a good thing to get a lot of reps around in your twenties. Do you have any tactical advice for people to build that self-confidence? Is it just awareness that really no one truly has an idea of what they're doing around you or... Are there actual things that you did to help yourself build that confidence over time? I forget who said this quote. Maybe it was Albert Einstein or someone. I don't know. Someone smart. But the quote is something like, I think you should spend 99% of your time thinking about the problem and 1% thinking about the solution. And I very much think that's true both in startups and in any job is that if you spend most of your time trying to understand the problem space and truly being in discovery and empathy for the user, whoever it is you're trying to solve for and like being open-minded about the fact that you probably don't fully understand the problem. I think the biggest mistake that people make is jumping to solutions. And that's where the imposter syndrome comes from. Cause you're like, oh my God, like, I don't know what the solution is, <laughs> you know, or like what, like how, how am I supposed to do this? I think if you spend a lot of time being like, okay, like what actually is the problem and like defining the problem that gets you to the expertise of the solution much faster. And like, you'll probably end up implementing a solution that you didn't even think of at the beginning. And so skill sets that anyone has is user research and discovery, right? Like you can definitely talk to who you think your potential customer is. You can definitely talk to other stakeholders in the space and you can ask them questions that will get you to a further understanding of what the actual pain points are. And then I think the biggest thing about imposter syndrome as it relates to entrepreneurship or people feeling, oh, I'm not ready to start the company is it's not really idea-based. I think it's people spend too much time, you know, I don't have a good idea. And it's not about the idea or the solution. It's about picking the problem space that you want to work in. So is it that you want to work on climate change mitigation? Like, is it that you want to work on a very specific problem around third-party shipping logistics? I don't know. It could literally be around any, any space. But I think the more important thing is define the problem space that you want to figure out keep your mind open around different solutions, understanding the, understanding the problem space. And then the business modeling is going to be around the solution once you figure out the problem space fully. But I think most people are the barriers, oh, I don't have an idea. And it's like, no, you don't actually, it's good that you don't know what your idea is right now. But observe what the problems are 
And then once you get to the idea, that will be your business model. But you don't have to have your business model right now. But you just need to figure out what you want to look at. That very much sounds what you and Phil, how you and Phil almost approached Misfit when you started it was that you both identified a common problem. And then you said you were working incrementally over time to find the solution. Yeah, totally. And it, it can get really complicated, right? We were looking, ultimately, we were setting up a two sided problem space because, like, there's problems for farmers, but there's also problems for the customer. And our solution mm-hmm. was very good for the farmer type, right? Because we were buying fruits and vegetables otherwise not could sell them and then turn it into a sexy consumer, pro- consumer product. Our solution was not necessarily the right solution for our customers. It was a really hot space when we first started the company, but then it became not the right solution for our customers over time as people want to decrease sugar content in their diet. And so it can get really complicated. And I think there were, there was definitely things that Phil and I could have thought about more in the executional space of how do we solve the problem space for both the farmer and the customer. But that's where you learn, right? It's the best part of startups is experimentation and just knowing that most of the time, it's not going to be perfect. But I think that's one of the things that I think both Phil and I would have done more is we did so much discovery around the problems we saw about farmers. And I wish we would have done more discovery around what the problems were for consumers in the packaged goods space and got into a better solution faster. Yeah. Hmm. That's an interesting take. So now that you've gone through the full cycle uh, from being a founder in college, going through the ups and downs of starting your own company to now working in a separate startup where you're not the founder, would you recommend a college student to go and start a similar journey and start their own companies? Yeah, 100%. I like, I have no regrets. Like it was, I obviously also like don't have a counterfactual, so I couldn't tell you what the other way would have gone. But I think the, there are so many benefits to starting a business when you're a student including the fact that everyone wants to talk to you when you're a student. The amount of times that Phil and I pulled the student card was so many times. And the benefit of starting as a student too is that you have all this infrastructure to help you. And it's just not as risky because at the time your job is being a full-time student. And and ultimately also, if you fail, the worst thing that happens is you have an incredible story for your next employer. Whereas I think that the further you get into your 20s, more things happen. You have higher expectations around what your lifestyle is supposed to look like. Like, you might consider like buying like a vehicle or you are more interested in purchasing property or you have a significant other. I just think that there are more and more variables that come up as you get further into your career. And also it's pretty hard to walk away from some of the sexy benefits of a job with an employer in terms of 401k matching and insurance and like really high salaries. A lot of people from good schools can get to um, those days. And so there's just more friction, I think, around leaving and you have to have a lot more activation energy around starting the business after college. And so I think college is a really safe space. And it really, it set me up for my career really well. I think in terms of learning really quickly and the scope of work that I was covering was so big relative to a normal job that it was definitely the best like learning experience I could have given myself at the start of my career. And you obviously are no longer at Misfit. You decided to leave the company and you shared this widely circulated article just with your reflections on mental health and entrepreneurship. So I just wanted to give you the floor and let you explain what the article was about and really what you learned from that whole experience. Yeah, so I basically completely burnt myself out by the time I turned 25. And the burnout was from a lot of different directions, but the main one was the cognitive distance I was experiencing as someone who grew up in a low income household with the pressures of entrepreneurship and just essentially the financial risk being becoming more clear as I got further into. And I think the main realization that I had was that I was recreating the chronic stress of my childhood in entrepreneurship. 
So even though I, I still love startups and I still, even though I went through this experience, would still do it over again. The biggest realization I had was that one of the reasons I was attracted to the lifestyle of a startup was because it was creating the chronic stress that I grew up as a kid in a low income household. And that was not a super healthy relationship that I had with work. And I was like, driving a lot of like, my identity and value out of my company and misfit became who I was and who I was misfit, which was also an unhealthy relationship. And I burned myself really badly. I was like, very depressed. And I think the biggest thing was like, my investors and also Phil were super encouraging and supportive and understanding that like what I needed was a like, time and space to invest in other things besides my job and I had this relationship with money and financial security where I felt if I wasn't working really hard and if I wasn't stressed out all the time something was wrong and I need to really decouple that relationship just because like, you're living a well-balanced life or you have things that are serving you in your life and giving you joy that aren't your job doesn't mean that something's wrong it just means you're living a healthy life and I'm really glad that I was so public about it I think there was main investors who emotionally supported me through this, they were look, you don't have to be super public about this. Co-founders leave all the time. You've been doing this for a really long time. Everyone will be very understanding, but they also, we would be really proud of you if you were transparent about it. And I decided, made the decision to wear my heart fully on my sleeve, really explain all the dynamics of that were happening for me around mental health and entrepreneurship. And ultimately I told my entire LinkedIn network that I had depression, which also was a ballsy decision, but I'm so glad that I did it. And I think it's because it opened up so many really beautiful conversations I had honestly with complete strangers on the internet around mental health and entrepreneurship, people who are going through divorces, people who felt burnt out in their corporate jobs, investors who wanted to know how they can better support founders from non-traditional backgrounds. They just really had very real conversations with people. I think because I was vulnerable first, people were incredibly willing to tell me the real shit that they were going through. And it just was this very life-giving thing for me where I was, your professional world can be the space that is also about personal development, personal sharing. And the two things are don't have to be the case. And I think I was even worried that if I was vulnerable about my mental health stuff, that it would impact my job opportunities after Misfit. And it honestly only increased it. Do you know what I mean? Particularly, I think in the space I was looking at, which is around startups and venture capital, like I think that article only made people, made me more hireable, if that makes sense. And so it was this big signal for me that being vulnerable and being open around your weaknesses and your imperfections is a good thing and can help people. And I, so I hope that me opening up my internal world also created a safer space on the internet and in startups for people to talk about mental health and entrepreneurship. Totally. I, I think even today, well, when you released the article at that time, I don't think people were generally as open about that merge between career and personality yeah. or what you're going through in your personal life. I think that's becoming more and more common today where you're seeing actually the advice is you should start your own blog or your own uh, newsletter, especially in the tech space for people to have a personal identity to build their career around. You should so, start a podcast too. I don't know. <laughs> yeah yeah great idea yeah. but i wonder if you just have any thoughts on that because at the time you released the article i don't think it was as common to do that yeah totally the one of the, i think the most interesting things that's happening in a post-covid world is that the future of work has become such a good center of conversation and you even see this in macro level of trends right there are a historic number of people leaving their jobs and mm -hmm. i think it's because covid really brought into this question for people around what does my life look like and like what does like, my mental health look like in relation to my work particularly in this period where like work and life were completely the same thing because you're you're working out of your house and you're not going into an office and the New York Times actually just released a really cool series that is about the future of work with all of these very compelling quotes from people who've made career changes post-COVID or quit their jobs around making statements. I've never, 
I'm never answering a work email at the dinner table again. I'm never going to not pick up my kids from school. These types of things that boundaries that they are now setting in their lives that they wouldn't have because of the post-COVID world. And so I think that it's been really accelerated from COVID. I think more and more people are advocating for what they want their lives to look and how work can be a part of that. rather than work being the centerpiece. And to be honest, I still think that you can live a pretty balanced life as an entrepreneur. I just didn't do it. And the way that you do that is through funding, right? And through extreme delegation and hiring people who are smarter than you into the business quickly. So if I were to do it again, or if there are other people in my life who are thinking about doing it right now, my biggest piece of advice is like, you gotta, you treat it a job, you have to like have other places of like joy in your life and like, you can't bring yourself out. And the easiest way to do that is raise money, pay yourself money so you can live your life and then hire people who are experts into the job pretty quickly because you're gonna be able to move faster and accelerate faster and you'll be able to like live your life. And I don't think I did a good job of doing that. I felt like I had to do everything. I was a first time manager. We did not hire fast enough. There are many things that I think could have helped me avoid burnout that I just didn't know at the time. So what is the future for Anne look? Where do you think you'll be in uh, one year, in five years? Yeah, I, I think I'm still figuring that out. And that's sort of the beauty of it. But right now I am a product manager at a company called Hipcamp. I started in this sort of special project, half chief of staff, half everything role for the CEO of Hipcamp. And did that for about a year and a half and then just transitioned into product two months ago. And like, it's been an awesome experience. We, I was employee number 26 or 27 at Hipcamp, but now I'm 120. We're 120 people across three countries. So it's been a very exciting time for growth. And I think I hope to be at Hipcamp for a long time. I'm really enjoying the ride. I think the spaces that I've been exploring and been thinking about for later on in my career are around joining a company in a product position where the core user is a low income user. I think that there are a lot of interesting problem spaces that had not been explored and are starting to get funded by major VC, particularly around fintech for low income users. For health, I think the health space for low income users is a really interesting space. And it's just like, I think. I'm very passionate about improving the lives of that, the community that I grew up in and like changing social costs in my lifetime. I think if we can point venture capital dollars towards solutions and startups that are not only financially sound, but also improve the lives of low-income users, I think that's very well uh, worthwhile. And in particular, I think climate change mitigation for low-income communities of color is something that is going to become very important. And I think the past year, in particular the past six months with all of the historic climate change events that have happened and all like the variables that have compounded has demonstrated that climate change is a very important issue that we're all gonna be thinking about for the next few years. And the reality is that the wealthier you are, the longer you're gonna be able to avoid the effects of climate change. And the people who aren't going to be avoid those are vulnerable communities of color. And so I still have to validate whether or not there are private sector solutions in that space, whether or not there's even a startup opportunity there. But if there is, I think that'd be very meaningful work in terms of figuring out how to minimize those negative effects on those communities. Yeah. I love that. So if you could go back in time a couple of years and talk to young Anne before she turns 20, what piece of advice would you tell her? Have more fun. Yeah, I think I, I think that's another, I've talked about this a lot with a lot of different friends with different backgrounds, but I think like one of the biggest things is 
it's, I have a group of friends in my life where they, particularly in San Francisco, where they live their lives, where they optimize around how can I have the most fun or feel the most fulfilled today. And I really admire about that, that about them. And I think it's really hard from anyone from a marginalized identity to ever feel that's okay. And I think it's just so powerful when it's so dope when people of color or women are just like, having the best time of their lives and like feel free and not inhibited in that. I think it's very rare. And I also think it's like radical and like, pretty revolutionary. And I think there were just, there were a lot of times where I was just like, oh no, I can't do that. Or I can't go there. I shouldn't spend the money doing that. Or I need to be responsible. When in fact, the responsible thing like to do would have been to have fun and open my mind and be more adventurous. And I think if there's anything that we've all learned in the past couple of years is that life is short and like it's about meaningful connection. And I think we've all been craving meaningful connection during COVID. And so I've definitely reoriented my life around that. It's where life is supposed to be joy-filled in small and big ways. And it's not really sustainable to be like, oh, like my life is going to be optimal at this point in my career. Or my life is going to be amazing when I meet this person. Or my life is going to be amazing when I meet this like benchmarking goal. We should all, I definitely have goals in my life that I haven't achieved yet. I'm going to continue to set them. But I also think it's so important to have like those moments of joy every day and not put off living your life until a certain milestone. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much for the time today. We really appreciate the time and it was a blast having you. Thank you so much. It was so, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me.